Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, August 24, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News, the color of water. Local activists talk climate justice and race on eve of felony trial by Will Matuska, August 24, 2023. It was just before dawn and they were moving quickly. A headlamp guided group of activists who call themselves water protectors scurry in the middle of a rural dirt road to set up a temporary structure. Shadows linger at the edge of the surrounding dense northern Minnesotan forests. The bamboo-like construction is made of three sections of beams crossed and stacked on top of each other, rising about 35 feet. A makeshift ladder hangs in the middle as a portal to the two hammocks nested at its crown. That's where Boulder resident Mylene Villard found herself near the end of August 2021, protesting the upgrade and expansion of Line 3, a pipeline that transports oil from Edmonton, Alberta, and across Minnesota to Lake Superior. Along with putting water bodies at risk and exacerbating climate change, water protectors like Villard argue the new pipeline would threaten nearby indigenous communities and their rights to hunt, fish, and gather wild rice. Underneath a royal blue hard hat, Villard's nose and mouth are covered by a black mask with white print, Injustice. Quote, I'm here for my daughter and my daughter's daughter and all their children and grandchildren, unquote. Villard said in a video from the event, quote, I'm here because there's a real climate crisis and nobody seems to care. I'm here because that's the only thing I can do right now. I have to show up and I have to defend this land and the rights of the people who have been on this land forever, unquote. She was arrested that day while bystanders cried for officers to stop as they forcefully removed Villard and her collaborator from the top of the structure. Despite years of public resistance to Line 3, it was completed later that fall. Two years later, Villard is returning to Aitken County on August 28 to face the felony charge of obstructing the legal process. If she's found guilty, she could face up to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. The term water protector is a concept in activism that arose in 2016 
from indigenous communities during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests at Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. These advocates are defined by a philosophical approach rooted in indigenous perspectives that see water and land as sacred. Many white protesters like Violard take on the mantle to show solidarity with native communities. Experts around the country are recording a steady increase of worry about climate change, coined as climate anxiety. Sometimes it results in direct action, like at line three. Other times it doesn't. But Sarah Jaquette Ray, a professor of environmental studies at Cal Poly Humboldt, says it's an, quote, overly overwhelmingly white, unquote, phenomenon. Quote, the prospect of an unlivable future has always shaped the emotional terrain for black and brown people, whether that terrain is racism or climate change, Ray wrote in her 2020 book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. Exhaustion, anger, hope, the effects of oppression and resistance are not unique to this climate moment. What is unique is that people who had been insulated from oppression are now waking up to the prospect of their own unlivable future, unquote. Defining the role of people waking up to the climate crisis is critical for the movement to continue forward. Quote, there already is a mental health crisis once we come to terms with the eventuality and the severity of climate impact, unquote, says René Millard Chacon, executive director of the environmental nonprofit WIMXN, W-O-M-X-N, WIMXN from the mountain. Quote, people are going to panic. They are going to feel apathetic. So justice is not just a priority, but it's legitimately what's going on to maintain our foundations of a society to get through that, unquote. Interconnected. Racism and environmental injustice are inextricably linked. It's been documented countless times across the country Black and brown communities, low-income neighborhoods, and other areas where people have limited power and resources are chosen for the sites of industrialized facilities like power plants or highways that negatively impact the health and well-being of the people living there. It's not a coincidence, for example, that Suncor's oil and gas refinery in Commerce City is surrounded by major majority Latino and low-income neighborhoods who are, as a result, exposed to higher-than-average pollution levels. Environmental justice is also about protecting the places we live, work, and play, which is why organizations like the Sierra Club are fiercely advocating against the Uinta Basin Railroad project that would allow crude oil to be carried from Utah along more than 200 miles of the Colorado River to refineries on the Gulf Coast. A federal appeals court rejected an essential permit for the project on August 18. Although the railway is delayed, the U.S. Surface Transportation Board is expected to continue pursuing the project. 
While people who have historically been victims of pollution and climate externalities still bear the brunt, now those impacts are being felt across communities nationwide more than ever before, with widespread wildfires, irregular storm patterns, and heat waves. Ray says climate solutions that don't take into account the history of racism and oppression replicate the same systems that cause social injustice. Quote, climate change is just exposing everyone to the fact that the system has never benefited anyone, and now the entire ecosystem on which all human life depends is under threat. Unquote. The right time. Villard says some of her biggest takeaways from her activism at Line 3 are about navigating her role as a white woman and acknowledging her privilege and bias through decolonization training. But it can be a tricky line to walk when white participation is harmful or productive. In a movement that dismantles oppression white folks caused and benefited from and empowers people disproportionately impacted by climate change. At one point in northern Minnesota, Villard was called out by a person of color for doing something she had, quote, no clue was harmful, but it was, unquote. She says she learned a valuable lesson on the difference between intent and impact. Quote, it's about white supremacy, what it represents, and what has been done by people who look like me, she says. So being conscious of my body in that way and what I represent was the greatest lesson. Unquote. While acknowledging that white people have a role in maintaining a system of oppression and have a responsibility to act, Villard says support needs to be fluid and based on listening. Sometimes it's essential for white people to step in, Ray says, like when privilege can be deployed by a white person if there's a financial cost at stake, but should be utilized at the right moments. Quote, there are times when there's the white savior complex at play and the sort of hero thing that is damaging and silencing, she says. And that line is a difficult one to draw, and different people might say that line is different. It's very tricky, and I think most white people say, that's too hard, I don't know how to navigate that, unquote. Millard Chacon whose background includes Diné, Chicana, and Filipina heritage, says allies should avoid centering their own narrative and give BIPOC and indigenous voices space in decision-making processes. Quote, These communities are doing more with less to even protect their communities, she says. So when we're asking for allies in those spaces, or when we're showing that we need accomplices, what it's really going to take is for communities to understand that it's now time to re relinquish privileges, unquote. But for some, it's not natural to participate in a movement that completely reimagines the systems that white people have benefited from and either may not be keen to let them go or can't imagine a different world. Quote, 
there's a request in the climate justice movement to completely throw out everything from Western colonial mindsets and re-engage with the world in a completely new way, says Ray. That is really scary to a lot of people, and that's one way white fragility manifests in the inability of white people to participate in climate change activism, unquote. Stacked Deck As a mother, Millard Chacon says she has no choice but to be an optimist. Quote, I always tell my kids not to lose heart. I know it's scary, and you were born in pollution you don't deserve. But so was I, she says. There is an ability to have joy. You do deserve to have a creative and expressive life without extraction and exploitation. And it's overdue for all of us to look at ourselves without environmental and colonized paradigms, unquote. Villard has spent most of her life studying racial and environmental justice. On her way up the structure on the day she was arrested, she says she felt she was a part of a movement and a community. Quote, we are trained to think that we have to do it all by ourselves, that we have to be looking at ourselves and taking care of ourselves only. And it's the wrong way to be, she says. If we want to be happy, if we want to have rich lives, we have to create community and a community of values, but also communities with people we're not currently in community with. We really have to experience each other. And that's been one of my greatest lessons from line three, unquote. Since the summer of 2021, it was revealed that more than $8 million in additional resources was reimbursed to law enforcement by an Enbridge-funded escrow account to handle opposition to line three. The Aitken County Sheriff's Office, which arrested Villard, was reimbursed more than $300,000. Claire Glenn, a staff attorney for the Climate Defense Project representing Villard, has represented nearly 100 Line 3 activists. She says most cases have resulted in dismissals due to overcharging. Quote, the criminal system did not end up going after people to seek criminal charges, and that's because this wasn't about public safety. It was about getting a pipe in the ground as quickly as possible, unquote, she says. Line 3 has leaked four times since the pipeline was completed, exactly what indigenous leaders and other water protectors argued would happen. Quote, we're starting to understand that indigenous people are right. They've been right all along, says Villard, and we're still not listening. We're still violating their rights. We're still putting profit over people, unquote. Villard didn't take the plea deal offered to her, saying she couldn't come to terms with stating she was guilty. Quote, Enbridge Corporation is the one destroying the land, is the one destroying the traditional way of life of indigenous people, is the one altering the ecology and the environment, is the one denying the right to ceremony to the indigenous people, says Villard. All I did was say no, unquote. News, now you know. This week's news in Boulder County and beyond.
by Kaylee Harter, August 24, 2023. Candidates running for Boulder mayor. Boulder's first ranked choice voting mayoral election is approaching, and candidates began filing their paperwork to run earlier this month. Running for mayor are council members Nicole Spear and Bob Yates and sitting mayor Aaron Brockett. Until now, Boulder's mayor was appointed by city council members. In the ranked choice voting system, a candidate who garners more than half of the first choice votes wins. If no candidate receives more than 50%, the candidate with the fewest first choice votes is eliminated and the second-choice votes on those ballots will be counted. That process continues until a candidate has more than half the votes. Any additional candidates must submit their bid for mayor by August 28, which requires candidates to have 25 to 35 registered electors sign their petition. Candidates running for the other four open seats on City Council are current Council Member Tara Weiner, Tasha Adams, Jennifer Robbins, Waylon Lewis, Jacques DeCalo, Terry Bernchik, Tina Marquis, Ryan Schuchard, and Silas Atkins. Boulder County Chamber will hold a City Council Candidate Forum August 29 from 5 to 8 p.m., Plan Boulder County will also hold a public discussion August 29 at noon in the Boulder Public Library. Boulder Occupancy Limit Raised Boulder City Council voted 6-3 to to raise the occupancy limit to allow five unrelated people to live together, a move supporters say will increase access to affordable housing. The previous ordinance allowed three unrelated people to live together in low-density zoning districts and four in high-density zones. There are no limits on family members. Mayor Aaron Brockett, who voted in approval at the August 17 City Council meeting, said the move was a step toward affordability and accessibility in Boulder, quote, without building anything, without tearing anything down, unquote. The vote followed more than four hours of public comment. Supporters of increasing the occupancy limit pointed to inclusivity, affordable housing, environmental sustainability, and the benefits of communal living. Opponents voiced concern about parking, nuisance complaints, and whether the ordinance would actually make housing more affordable. Quote, this is a small step for housing and for personal freedom and accountability, but it feels like a giant leap forward for inclusion and for community, unquote, said Councilmember Nicole Spear, who voted in favor of the change, but said there was still work to be done in terms of, quote, helping people stay in our community and slowing these housing price increases, unquote. Councilmember Bob Yates, who opposed the ordinance, called it, quote, a missed opportunity to guarantee affordable housing, unquote. Quote, I think we're deceiving ourselves and our community if we think this law will magically make Boulder more affordable. It will not, unquote, he said. Some, such as Councilmember Mark Wallach, 
also took issue with city council rather than voters approving the occupancy limit, citing the 2021 Bedrooms Are for People ballot measure that would have raised the occupancy limit to the number of bedrooms in a unit plus one, which lost by a vote of about 52% to 48%. Quote, They were not voting against a formula calculating density. They were voting against the increase itself, Wallach said. You don't have to like the result, but that was the community's decision, unquote. Other council members pushed back on that assertion. Quote, this was a unanimous 9-0 vote to add this to our work plan, unquote. Council member Rachel Friend said, quote, this is a democratic process. We are a representative form of government. We are not voting on the same thing that was rejected. Unquote. Kanemoto conservation easement terminated. Boulder County commissioners voted two to one to enter a 41-year-old conservation easement on the edge of Longmont, answering one of the county's many debates on affordability, housing, open space, and conservation. The termination allows for the 38-acre plot on the east side of Airport Road to be annexed into Longmont and makes room for the construction of up to 426 affordable and attainable units in a development named Somerset Village. Commissioners also added conditions to compel the developer to commit to providing lower-cost housing in the development. A conservation easement is a voluntary agreement between a landowner and another entity, such as a land trust or government agency, that restricts use on a parcel of land. The Kanemoto Estates easement was established in 1982 between the Kanemoto family who owns the property and Boulder County Parks and Open Space, but like more than 130 others across the county, the arrangement included language that allows for ending the easement to make way for development. The review process was initiated by the landowner and developer Left Hand Ranch LLC, requesting to terminate the easement, annex the land into Longmont, and develop a residential neighborhood. Commissioners Claire Levy and Marta Loachamin voted in favor of the termination. Ashley Stoltzman was opposed. Read more about the Kanemoto Conservation Easement at boulderweekly.com slash news slash not dash in dash my dash backyard. Boulder wins Leadville. Two Boulder-based runners dominated the Leadville 100 Ultra Marathon, which celebrated its 40th anniversary this year. Some 700 runners from 49 states and 30 countries started the 100-mile race across 15,000 feet of net elevation gain on August 19. Only 44% of them finished. Jackie Manhard, who finished first in the women's race, finished with a time of 21 hours, 24 minutes, and 55 seconds. 
more than an hour and 45 minutes faster than the next fastest runner. J.P. Giblin, who finished first in the men's race, finished with a time of 17 hours, 7 minutes, 25 seconds. Free rides. Free bus rides on a fixed route between Ward and Rollinsville have relaunched to help connect residents to essential services along the peak-to-peak highway. The service Mountain Rides is intended to address transportation gaps for residents and stops at various human services, recreation, and shopping sites, including a food bank, trailhead, and library. Mountain Rides runs on Wednesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 3.45 p.m. No reservations or passes are required. The service connects to RTD northbound route between Netherland and Boulder at the downtown Netherland RTD Park and Ride. See the full route and more information at peaktopeaktransportation.com. Revamped Countywide Chipping Program Boulder County residents now have access to free chipping services as part of an effort to reduce wildfire risk. The county-supported program aims to foster, quote, a safer, cleaner, and more fire-resilient environment for all, unquote, through helping residents dispose of green branches and brush. The county has had a chipping program in place since 1993, but the new program increases the services provided, according to an August 16 press release. To be eligible, one household must host, quote, community chipping events, unquote, for at least five properties. More information on the application and scheduling process can be found at Boulder Chipping Program bit.ly slash Boulder Chipping Program. Opinion Letters August 24, 2023 by readers like you. Thanks for supporting the arts. Kudos to the Boulder City Council for voting to advance an initiative for this fall's ballot extending an existing sales tax with an allocation of half the revenue gathered from this tax to bring much-needed funding to arts and heritage organizations without raising taxes. Contrary to some opinions I've read, passing this initiative will not cut funding for existing services in Boulder, Rather, this funding will do two important things. One, it will begin to close the gap between Boulder and comparable cities when it comes to funding arts and culture. Boulder currently spends 60% less on the arts than comparable cities, $17 per capita versus $43. And two, It will provide much-needed funding to artists and organizations who generate a positive return on investment for city coffers. According to the Arts and Economic Prosperity 6 study, the nonprofit arts and culture industry generates $69.8 million in annual economic activity in Boulder, 
supporting 1,832 full-time equivalent jobs and generating $4.6 million in local and state government revenues. Not bad for about $1.80 in current funding from the city of Boulder. I think that's $1.8 million. This increased funding will also allow arts organizations to continue providing programming for public schools at little to no cost. For example, the organization I run, Parlando School of Musical Arts, provides outreach for tens of thousands of people every year. This includes providing 3,000 public school music classes with free on-site support. Our colleagues in BVSD have come to rely on this support to make their music programs happen. Some of these colleagues are teaching in three to five different schools every week. They need our help. Boulder faces many challenges. Investing in arts organizations to help address some of these challenges leverages additional resources at a relatively small cost. That sounds smart, SM capital A-R-T, smart to me. From Travis V. LaBerge, executive director and founder of Parlando School of Musical Arts. Wyoming Proposal I wonder how many of us realize that Donald Trump was able to enter the West Wing because of an outdated electoral college system that should have 676 electors, not 538, per the Wyoming rule proposal. 538 was fine in 1929 when Congress froze the number of seats in the House at 435. Today, we have underrepresented people everywhere. The most notable problem with the 435 limit is California. Between the 2010 and 2020 census, the state saw a population increase of 1 million people, yet the state lost one congressional seat and one elector because of a 1929 law, the Permanent Apportionment Act. The number of seats in the House and electors in the Electoral College should be revised with every census taken. From Pete Simon in Arvada. Don't let it fool ya. Given our recent abundance of warmth, water, and carbon dioxide, greenery in Boulder is having a banner summer. Emerald ash borers did finally kill a neighbor's tree, but during the attack, it scattered thousands of seeds, and I have saplings, one ten feet tall, popping up everywhere in my yard. Also, my golden rain tree is attempting to create a rain tree forest, which, with the spread of chokecherries, mahonia, tansy, dock, burdock, cornflowers, et al. of the wild world of weeds, has turned my backyard into an aspiring jungle all without city water. The drought has eased, at least for now, and we have been spared the increasingly frequent climate disasters occurring around the world. We should thank our lucky stars, but must never forget that global warming and climate change will be with us into a yet undetermined offing. From Robert Porath in Boulder. Entertainment. Screen. 
Nobody puts baby in the corner. Two new Criterion home video sets highlight the multiplicity of filmmakers by Michael J. Casey, August 24, 2023. Pika Toby Smith is an Oakland College student taking Polaroids in a photography class devoted to 35mm. Quote, I came here to learn how to express myself, she tells the teacher, Salim Akil. You gotta have a 35mm camera to be expressive nowadays? Unquote. He's interested in theory, but Pika is trying to capture the faces of young black men. They're, quote, an endangered species, unquote, she tells Toby, April Barnett. Between the crack epidemic raging around them and a serial killer at large, indeed they are. But photos only accomplish so much. So Pika builds handcrafted totems, gravestone-like sculptures for the fallen, in a vacant, unkept patch of grass in the middle of her neighborhood. They're offerings from the heart. So it is with 1998's Dry Long So, the lone feature from multidisciplinary artist Colleen Smith. The title, a Gullah Geechee word meaning everyday folk, is exactly what Pika and Smith are after. Pika with the residents of her neighborhood, Smith with Pika and Toby, two young women trying to find their place in the world. But many critics and audiences didn't necessarily see the movie. As Smith explains in an interview with scholar Michael B. Gillespian, Criterion's newly released disc, those viewers in 98 focused more on the movie as a social document rather than a piece of artistic expression. It turned Smith off narrative work, and she hasn't made a feature since. She's directed many fascinating shorts, including the seven featured on Criterion's set, all examples of a cinematic career that could have been. Smith is far, far from the only filmmaker backed into a creative corner. Criterion's other newly released set, The Renown Westerns, shows that the laser focus of success often obscures the multiplicity of artists. Released in a prolific fever of four years, 1957 to 60, the Renown Cycle, The Tall T, Decision at Sundown, Buchanan Rides Alone, Ride Lonesome, and Comanche Station are some of the best entries in the Western genre. Spare, sincere, tough. Randolph Scott stars in all five, with Bud Bedecker directing with an aesthetic sensibility that keeps them from being simplistic or forgettable. Criterion's set includes stunning restorations of all five movies and a handful of documentaries about Bedecker. In all but one, Bedecker gets frustrated with the interviewer trying to paint him as a cowboy, the movies as a form of autobiography. Bedecher directed over 30 features in a career spanning four decades, and yet it will always be these five movies made in four years that landed him in the history books. Smith directed only one. The significance of their films cannot be denied for reasons they intended and a few they didn't. 
Artists don't necessarily get to choose what history remembers them for, but in the end, it is the work in all its dimensions that lasts. On screen, Dry Longso and the Renown Westerns are available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Entertainment Stage Behind the Curtain Louisville Showcase presents world premieres of three works by Colorado playwrights by Tony Tresca, August 24, 2023. When a good theatrical production does its job, the audience is moved on a cellular level by the essence of human creativity. Actors embody the soul-stirring narrative of the playwright, turning our deepest fears, hopes, and joys over in the spotlight. But it's what happens in between these two points that the Front Range Playwrights Showcase, a night of staged readings hosted by Coal Creek Theater of Louisville, CCT, is designed to celebrate. Quote, I have a lot of friends who are non-theater people, and one of the ways I'm promoting this event to them is by explaining that this is how the sausage gets made, unquote, says Brett Nickerson, director of Earworms, for this year's showcase. Quote, you don't write a two-hour play and it just gets produced. You start with a draft and a reading to work out the kinks, unquote. Originating in 2007 as an evening of lightly produced one-act plays, the festival has evolved over the years into two distinct endeavors, the Front Range Playwrights Showcase and an evening of Colorado-grown one-acts. Quote, When we first started, we thought we could do a little bit of blocking and costuming, says CCT Board Secretary Lynn Fleming, but we quickly turned it into a straight stage reading, unquote. CCT received 21 scripts between March and May, all meeting the nonprofit's hour or less length requirement and falling under one important rubric. All plays must be penned by a Colorado resident. But when it comes to the topics of the winning works themselves, all bets are off. Quote, there's a slight similarity to all three plays because they are all very future-oriented, unquote, says CCT Artistic Director Kirsten Jorgensen-Smith, quote, but I love that we were able to find three stories that really aren't 100% alike at all, unquote. A Lonely Process The 2023 showcase includes the aforementioned Earworms, by Brat Rutledge, Plugged In by Grant Swenson, and Serving the Story by Scott Gibson. These plays will be performed in reader's theater style with adjudications by Alphonse Keesley, Madge Montgomery, and Terence Keene. Quote, Our special play election committee has been reading them as they've been coming in, and scoring them individually, not against each other, but on their own merit, Smith says. We then chose our top three and matched them with directors by July 1, so we can start rehearsals for the showcase in August. Additionally, after our showcase this year, 
audiences will be able to return to see these plays fully produced in August 2024, unquote. Earworms, written by Rutledge and directed by Nickerson, follows two men who meet after the funeral of their college roommate. Although he has performed with CCT and written several plays that have been produced locally, this is Rutledge's first submission to the showcase. Quote, After I talked to Steve Rausch, who is one of the board members, he encouraged me to take a chance and submit a script, Rutledge recalls. While trying to figure out what to write about, I saw a play featuring a local actor named Wade Livingston and decided to write something for him to perform, unquote. Plugged In, written by Swenson and directed by Jeremy Denning, takes place in a completely different part of the galaxy. The narrative invites readers to travel to a planet with a special form of evolution. Quote, Back in 2013, I joined a local playwriting group in Colorado Springs called Drama Lab and heard through that group that CCT was looking for submissions, Swenson says. So I found a science fiction play that I had written that previous year and I submitted it, and it was chosen as one of the top three and won the showcase that year. Recently, I made the decision to write a sci-fi follow-up about this alien world where evolution differed from that on Earth, unquote. The final production of the showcase is Serving the Story, written by Gibson and directed by Smith, which follows actors who find themselves trapped in a play. Quote, I've submitted several times, and I've been fortunate enough that they have selected three of my plays over the years to be produced, Gibson says. They've always done lovely work with my plays, so applying is always a no-brainer. This year, I wanted to come up with something that was sort of absurdist and surreal. As the plot progresses, you realize the characters are aware that a subpar playwright is forcing them to participate in activities for his own amusement. It is a little dark, but also has some humor in it." Unquote. And the showcase is more than just a platform for highlighting talent. It's also a testament to the deep bonds formed between playwrights, actors, directors, and the community at large. Quote, Playwriting is such a solitary, lonely process, Gibson says. When you first begin to write a play, you are sitting in a room by yourself, writing what works for you. Putting a play in front of an audience who has no idea what the play is about leads to such invaluable feedback. I may write something that seems terribly funny to me, but when the actor says it, the line lands with a thud. When I hear that, I think, okay, what I find humorous is not necessarily what an audience finds humorous, which is a very helpful realization for any writer and really improves the play." Unquote. On Stage, Front Range Playwrights Showcase by Cold Creek Theater of Louisville, 7 p.m., Friday, August 25, Louisville Center for the Arts, 801 Grant Avenue, $10. Entertainment Books, Boulder P.I. In award-winning memoir, 
Erica Krauss unspools a Title IX case involving an all-too-familiar local university by Bart Shaneman, August 24, 2023. Denver author Erica Krauss recently won the 2023 Colorado Book Award for Creative Nonfiction with her memoir, Telling, Tell Me Everything, an account of her private, uh, uh, excuse me, an account of her time as a private investigator working a sexual assault case involving football players at an unnamed Colorado University. But it doesn't take much in the way of detective skills to figure out that she's writing about an institution in our own backyard, CU Boulder. For legal reasons, she never specifically says it in the book. But the case Krauss worked on was the 2007 Title IX lawsuit filed after allegations of rape at a party attended by CU football players in 2001. In that case, the university reached a settlement with one woman for $2.5 million and another for $350,000. Taken separately, the elements of the book have all the makings for a sensationalized account, sexual violence, systemic abuse, athletes living above the law, and the slow grinding wheels of the justice system. system. But this isn't that kind of book. It's bigger than that. That's largely due to Krauss's ability as a writer. She's published fiction in The New Yorker and works as a creative writing professor at Regis University and Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver. She expertly weaves the disturbing material of the P.I. case with the story of her own personal battles to create a compelling narrative that's more than just an accounting of terrible abuses. Krauss worked hard to not only avoid exaggerating the facts, but to protect the identities of the very real people she depicts. Quote, that's the thing that kept me up at night, she says. I was scared of hurting people. I would either have insomnia or wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh my God, I forgot to change the state that person is from. These are people I worked to protect. And they really wanted to tell us their stories. It's important to protect them, unquote. One of the more impressive accomplishments in Krauss's tale is the way she builds a cohesive, dramatic arc out of both stories, the case and her personal life, that comes together with a satisfying climax and resolution. Quote, I don't have a lot of periods of time in my life that really fit that kind of narrative arc, but this one just did, she says. There were places where if it, it had been a novel, I would have been able to change what happened and move things around, but you can't do that with nonfiction, unquote. This was Krauss's first attempt at a memoir, and she ends up having to reckon with the advice she gave her students. She used to tell them that writing a memoir and fiction are the same. You're telling a good story. And that may be true to a point, but she also learned that the two modes are very different. For one, Krauss has to be painstakingly careful about the facts. If she screwed up one detail, she not only risked losing the reader's faith in the story, but in the case itself. Quote, 
There are a lot of high stakes with regard to accuracy in journalism, and I'm not a trained journalist, Krauss says. It was an on-the-job training kind of situation, unquote. Then there's the personal angle. Krauss unflinchingly delves into her relationships, including with her partner, her mother, and her boss. There's also an unnamed abuser from her childhood that reappears throughout the story as she tries to convince family members of the trauma she suffered. This didn't come easy. Krauss wasn't used to mining her personal history for material. Quote, That was a strange thing for me, she says. I'm actually a pretty private person. That was a leap of faith I had to make toward the reader, so they would be compassionate to me, too. It took a lot of long nights, and I'd say a fair amount of alcohol, to get through that. Unquote. People want to be seen. Publication of Tell Me Everything was shut down for seven months because of what Krauss calls, quote, legal bullying, unquote. She says that taught her the importance of finding a pro bono lawyer to help back her up. Krauss declined to comment further on why the book was stalled, citing legal reasons. Early in the book, Krauss writes about how she has a face that makes people want to tell her things. That quality helped her as a private investigator in this case, but the author also credits her success in the field to an awareness that people simply want someone to care about their lives. Quote, Most people want to be seen, she says. Most people want to be known for who they are, even if it's scary. That's why a lot of extremely brave women came forward and talked about what happened to them, even at great cost to themselves, unquote. After the 2007 Title IX case ended, a string of similar allegations began to surface at universities across the country. Krauss says more sunlight on a, quote, rampantly abusive, unquote, system has expanded the frame for thinking about such cases altogether. Quote, it began not just a new way of looking at law, but also a way of looking at sexual abuse, she says. It's not just a criminal problem, but also a systemic problem and a civil rights issue, unquote. Today, Krauss has largely set aside private investigation work. She might do a favor for a friend with a stalker as a one-off, for example, but she's mainly focused on writing and teaching. Her next book, A Collection of Short Stories, is due sometime next year. Quote, That's not to say I wouldn't take a case if it were amazing, she says. If it were something I could really sink my teeth into, I haven't had any cases like that in a while. But if one of those dropped in my lap, I would do it, unquote. On the page, Tell Me Everything, The Story of a Private Investigation by Erica Krauss, K-R-O-U-S-E, available now via Flatiron Books. Bonus, five nonfiction books recommended by Krauss. West with the Night by Beryl Markham. Quote, in 1936, Beryl Markham was the first pilot to fly solo across the Atlantic nonstop, and her writing was similarly gravity-defying, 
Ernest Hemingway agreed, this may be my favorite memoir, unquote. Notes on a Silencing by Lacey Crawford, quote, Speaking up often comes at a cost. Crawford pays that price for all of us, inspiring us to break our own silences and do the same. This memoir is one of the most courageous books I've ever read, unquote. Girlhood by Melissa Phoebos, quote, this essay collection reached a primal, visceral place in me and shook me up as a feminist writer in a good way. The writing is spectacular, unquote. Loitering by Charles D'Ambrosio, quote, I sometimes like to mark favorite sentences with sticky notes as I read. I used up three books of sticky notes on this masterful essay collection. My copy is a happy but deformed mass of paper and glue, unquote. Blue Highways, A Journey into America by William Least Heat Moon, unquote. In my early 20s, this memoir inspired me to take my own long journey to discover America along the back roads. I decided to become a writer on that odyssey, partly because of this book, unquote. Cuisine, good taste, love makes all the difference. Indian Bites is making some of Colorado's best Asian subcontinent cuisine by Colin Wren, August 24, 2023. When Gitanjali Shrestha moved from Pokhara, Nepal to Longmont in 2007, she wasn't quite sure what she was going to do. Until then, she had been working in hospitality, most recently as the public relations manager at the Shangri-La Village, one of Pokhara's most prestigious five-star resorts. Gitanjali grew up cooking. Quote, I had a passion. I'd take hours in the kitchen, as much to impress myself as to impress others. Unquote, she says. Even as her career took her along the front of house and client relations course, she still kept an interest in cooking. Quote, At Shangri-La, I'd walk into the kitchen and get the cooks to teach me the dishes. Unquote. When Gitanjali arrived in America, one of her first impulses was to open a restaurant. Quote, I didn't have a lot of money when I moved here, but I had a lot of courage, she says. Unquote adding that she almost opened a spot in Louisville in 2008. Instead, she started working as a certified nursing assistant and spent four years doing end-of-life care before opening her own home care company, Helping Angels, in 2001. Quote, It was hard, but I'm so glad I learned, unquote. She says, Helping Angels is still up and running. So for Gitanjali, the 2022 opening of Indian Bites in one of Longmont's many strip malls had been a long time coming. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so I will continue reading this article next week. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303
786-7777.